ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. That's US President John F. Kennedy announcing America's intention to go out into space and put the first human beings on the moon. And just seven years after that speech, in 1969, the whole world watched the first steps of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the surface of the moon. And just like just about anyone who was watching, Jackie Carpenter felt a surge of emotion and wonder. She was just a kid at the time. And maybe it gave her a taste for adventure. It took Jackie Carpenter a little while to make it to NASA, not as an astronaut, but as the first Australian to go to space camp in the United States. Jackie had been working for many years as a schoolteacher, and at space camp she landed simulated space shuttles. She met real-life astronauts and other people intrigued by the great big beyond, and she was utterly changed by the experience. And Jackie was so inspired by it all, she started raising money to send other Australians to space camp in America... And then she built her own right here in Australia called One Giant Leap. Hi, Jackie. Hi, how are you? Fine and well. Tell me exactly what space camp is, what happens to people when they go to space camp. Space Camp USA, you walk in the door and you come out changed. It's a unique place. It's been built over many, many years. But when you go in there, when I went, I went as an educator. I got a Honeywell scholarship. And I met teachers from all around the world that had been selected to go and do the program. We were put into teams and we do exactly missions, exactly how our missions are. I was made the commander of the space shuttle. I had no idea what I was doing. Being a primary teacher, suddenly in charge of a shuttle and a whole team of people. But you go through a program that goes for a week and you come out And you realise that you do have leadership ability, that your confidence is built. And more than that, working as a team is probably the most critical thing that we can do for the success of everyone, not just in the space industry but for everywhere. So you don't have to be like a brilliant science head to go in there to begin with? No way. And this is the thing. You don't need to be Albert Einstein to be part of the space industry. We need... Everyone from cleaners to security guards to accountants to dentists to everything. Like you name a job on earth, we're going to need that job in the space industry. And you don't need to be the top mathematician in your class. You need to look at can you communicate with people? Are you good at teamwork? Do you want to go to Mars? If you do, seven months in a little box with five other people, who's out of the airlock first in the first week? Recently, I rewatched that movie, uh, First Man, with Ryan Gosling, which is the story of Neil Armstrong. And having seen Apollo 13, you realise how much of the Apollo program was about problem solving, problem solving again and again and again. That's the most impressive aspect of it for me, apart from the wonder of space travel, is that absolute driven approach to problem solving. I met Jean Krantz. I happened to be in a lift in the Johnson Space Centre. 
I was over there for an education conference and I um, was presenting as an Australian. This is Jean Krantz, the astronaut, yeah. Yeah, Jean Krantz, the flight director who um, fixed up the issues with Apollo 13. I was standing there just going, I'm in a lift with Jean Krantz. I mean, <laughs> my knees were shaking and he said, do you want a photo with me? And I went, I would love a photo with you. So I have this great photo of me and Jean Krantz together. But I've seen him present a couple of times about problem solving working as a team, and then how did he make that those decisions around Apollo 13? Whose ideas did he go with and why? And how you make a decision and you just get the whole team to back that um, solution and go with it. And people's lives were on the line and the whole world was watching. Like I said, you saw that Apollo 11 mission when the astronauts got out of the landing craft, the lunar module, and walked on the surface of the moon. What do you remember of that? Where were you living? How old were you? What was going on in your life when you when you saw that? My childhood I spent at Heathcote in New South Wales. Just near the National Park? Near the National Park. We used to run around with no shoes on, get a peanut butter sandwich and a bottle of water and be gone off into the bush. Gone all day. So we had all different age groups. So we'd even tag my younger brother along. He'd be two, he was two years younger, so we'd all be gone. And so off into the bush and we'd go down to the scout pool and we'd go swimming. We had bushfires, of course, but we didn't have the kind of equipment we have today. So all the dads and that used to fight the fires. We'd be in the swimming, like down at the scout camp, down at the scout pool, and there's a big rock in the middle of it and it's fresh water, it's beautiful. Go down there and we were told if ever there's a fire, get in the water, cover your head with a wet towel and breathe through the towel because of the smoke, right? So a few times there we would be down there and the next thing a raging bushfire would come through. So we would just do what we were told, jump in in the pool. Put the towel on the head. And the rock was important because if the tree fell down, the rock would protect us because the tree would land on the rock, not on our head. So... We're there and we'd be doing that. The next thing, the fire would go through and then all the dads chasing like the Keystone cops be running, like trying to fight the fire after the fire's been. Did the, bush, a, did, did the fires ever get close to your front door? We had fires that I'm sure it was 1966 where I remember standing on the street. All we had was a red telephone box as a communication point, the old Telstra red phone box. What, people didn't have phones in their houses then? No, I can't recall anyone having a phone. We used to go up and put five, five and ten cents in the phone box and at the phone box was like at the front of a lady's house. Her name was Mrs Arnott. So we go going up to Mrs Arnott's to get on the phone and ring, ring up. So no one really had a phone. But no one had cars either. We had, I think there was one car in our street and one black and white TV in, so, in our street. So what happened when the bushfire came close? Well, the fires, I remember everyone standing on the road and it was just a clay road and everyone was talking like hush whispers but we could kind of hear what they were saying. They were all going like it was on the radio that we can't get rescued, that we're that basically that we were surrounded by fire and no-one could work out a way to get out. And I remember all the smoke and ashes dropping everywhere and stuff and standing there with all the parents and all the kids, and then out of the smoke came a St George cab. I have no idea who the man was. I have no idea how the St George cab got through. And he got out of his cab and he said, I've come to rescue the children. If you trust me, put the kids in my cab and I'm going to try and rescue them and get them out. At least we can rescue the kids. 
So I remember them all talking about, well, if that happened, where would we go? And it was the consensus that we go to my grandma's house. So, and she lived at, um, in, in um, Carlton, up near Hurstville, Penshurst, around that area. So I remember they said, okay, we'll put all the kids in the car, we'll cover them with blankets. And um, the guy said, well, I'm just going to try and go there. So I remember we're all loaded in the car, forget seatbelts, we're all loaded in his car, kids everywhere, just all stacked in, blankets over the top, boiling hot, and off we went and uh, waved goodbye to our parents. They waved goodbye to us. We didn't. We really didn't kind of work out what had gone on till later. And then we drove and we drove up to the old Princess Highway at Engadine and he said, don't look, so we all looked. And out the windscreen I could see this tunnel of fire, just this massive, all these trees on fire, and it was just this tunnel of fire. And the fire, the fireys were there and the, and the cab driver said, I've got the Heathcote kids here, I'm going to try and rescue them out. And he goes, I need you to get me through that. Fire brigade guy goes, hang on a minute, and he talked into his walkie-talkie and then some garbled stuff came back and they decided that what they'd do is they'd drive in to the fire, the fireys with their truck, and hose the heat off. Like So they were hosing the water above them to try and cool off a tunnel for us to get through. So they've got the hoses and they're hosing into the air above the truck and the fire. And then the guy said, when I tell you to go, you just gun it. So next thing the call came through and he just went go and he just, the cab driver just floored the cab um, accelerator and off we went, shot through the flames and went to my grandma's. But we couldn't tell anyone that we were there because there's no way of getting through. So it was um, probably a day or so later that we got word out that we are okay and... And, yeah, so then everyone kind of picked their kids up from my grandma's and back to Heathcote we went. So you're growing up in this environment with incredible beauty and the natural world around you. And apart from the occasional catastrophic and deadly bushfire, it's a kind of a a paradise. So given that there was one TV in the street, is that the TV you watched the moon landing on? Yeah, that's it. So what happened was we're all allowed to have the day off school and we all went over to the Wilshire's house because they had the TV. Black and white. Yeah, and we all sat on the lounge room floor and um, and it was great. It was a great environment. I... I believe my creativity and and how I think and things like that came from running around in the bush making stuff out of sticks and twigs and and falling over and cutting my feet and doing all of that. And then to actually have see on TV Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin step foot on the moon that night we're all laying on the road because there's no risk of being run over. No one had a car, <laughs> right? So we had this clay road where we used to make dams and get all dirty, like all that stuff. So th- that night we laid on the ground. And I remember just lying there. It was really peaceful and no one was talking. Everyone was just lying there. And I thought to myself, there's people up there. There's actual people up there that's not made of cheese. Were you inspired to become an astronaut? Did you want to be an astronaut after that? I think after I fell off the cliff, I'm a bit scared of heights. You fell off a cliff? Yeah, um, when I lived in Heathcote, they were doing an opening of the Heathcote 
scout camp and I fell off a 70-foot cliff and ended up in hospital for three months, off school for six months when I was in year three. So I have a bit of a aversion to heights. So the moon landing didn't inspire you to become an astronaut. What did you do instead once you finished school then, Jackie? I became a primary school teacher. I wanted to be a maths teacher, but I didn't get high enough HSC marks, so I... um. I became a primary school teacher, but I was the first person in my family to go to university. How did you support yourself through uni? <laughs> Luna Park. Um, Luna Park had opened after the fires and they started me off in the ice cream parlour, but I kept trying to do choc tops and dropping the ice cream out of the cone straight into the <laughs> chocolate. I was absolutely like anyone who knows me knows I've got a Facebook page, Fifty Shades of Charcoal. So cooking's really not my thing. So back then they they kind of threw me into the ice cream parlour and I only lasted like an hour. That didn't go down too well. So then they ended up putting me in the Top Hat restaurant and none of us had done any of this before. Talk about high pressure learning environment. So, yeah, I worked at Luna Park as a casual to put myself through uni. And that's where you met your first husband, Dennis. Yeah. And what kind of plans did you two concoct together? Then? <laughs> He's only ever ridden a motorbike. Um, cars are this weird thing that he just... I've tried to teach him how to drive. It just has never worked. And highly intelligent guy who decided that when we met that what we'd do is we'd buy two motorbikes and we'd ride around Australia. That was going to be the thing, you know. So off we, I was going to learn how to ride a bike and we were going 2 o'clock in the morning. We were share flatting in West Ride with the guy, with a German guy who'd come out with the roller coaster from Luna Park and his dog Rurik. And Rurik used to stand up under the kitchen table and the whole table would go with Rurik. Like it was a <laughs> massive dog. So I'm there. You can imagine I'm 20. I'm not 21 yet. Share flatting at West Ride with um, Dennis and Rurik and this guy, Byrne, and I've got a mattress on the floor. We've got one wardrobe. We're working really long hours at Luna Park and Dennis goes, let's sail around the world. I went, <laughs> what? It's a bit more ambitious than biking he, he around goes, Australia, yeah, well, isn't it? Yeah. Had either you or Dennis any experience sailing yachts? He had some prawn trawler experience, but my experience was like <laughs> oddly... <laughs> Oddly weird rowboats and the Manly Ferry. That was kind of like the sum total of my um, of my experience. So but, you know, you're young. You think you can I'm do 20. it. Twenty. I can learn. So did you end up buying that yacht? Oh yeah, yeah. We bought it at Northbridge Yacht Sales. Um, what did you do with it once you'd bought it? Well, it was funny because I'm on the back of the bike. We'd bought this yacht. Had no idea. Uh, these people sold it to us and it was in that, that chocolate brown, orange and yellow curtains and pine particle board. Right, very right? very 70s. Oh, right. yeah, totally, with orange yep. cushions, right? So I'm on the back of the bike and we're riding up from buying the yacht and we saved up the money and we paid cash, right, because it was a wreck of a boat. And then Dennis goes, well, I suppose we better get engaged now. So that was the day we got engaged was the day we bought the yacht. You can imagine my parents were like, I have no idea what's going on with this daughter of ours, but anyway. So we bought it, had no idea how to sail it. We had to get the people who owned it to bring it round to Lavender Bay because we figured we'll moor it in Lavender Bay because he was on the maintenance crew at Luna Park. So and it's right on Lavender Bay. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. you know, we'd get in the dinghy and we'd row out. That was, you know, that's at least I had that skill. You and know? were you living on the yacht at that point? Not at that point. 
Then we worked out we could actually tie up at the wharf at Luna Park, at the back of Luna Park. So then suddenly I was living at the back of Luna Park at Coney Island. Um, that sounds pretty good to me. It was three years of uh, of um, working on the yacht. I learnt how to how to get rid of rust. I learnt how to make baggy winkles. I, what is a baggy a winkle? A baggy winkle is that fluffy thing that protects your sails. So if you see a yacht and it's got white, like, fluffy stuff, you actually make it out of rope. So you sit there and can make your own baggy winkles. All right. So, so, so you're yeah. there, you're working on the space mission support on this yacht, essentially. And uh, <laughs> what, what about the actual voyaging and the sailing? Did you, did, were you well, learning how to sail on this thing? Well, I'm there going, like, I think I need lessons. So off I did. I went to TAFE and I did a navigation course. So I... <laughs> I, I tried to attack it in a logical way and I was teaching at the time. So being primary trained, I was teaching English history, maths and music in my old high school. Right, while living on a yacht yeah. behind Luna Park. Yeah, uh, yeah. And trying yeah. to get this yacht in shape to sail yeah. around the and world. And so then, yeah, so, you know, basically we tore it all apart. I know how to use drop saws, hand saws. Like I like going to Bunnings and pretending I don't know what I'm yeah, asking but, for, but I ask for countersunk wood screws and, you know. But what about the sailing, Jackie? Well, then, well, see, I didn't know how to do that. So I thought, okay, we've got to ask someone, a professional. So we found some guy who had been on the reenactment of the bounty and we went up to the pit water with him and he used to brush his teeth with salt water and I thought that was pretty full on for I wasn't going to be going down that road. And he told me I'd make a really good crewman but he didn't think my husband was going to be much chop. So we basically did some pit water sailing and then suddenly I fell pregnant. So I fell pregnant with our, with our eldest daughter Erin. So I cut a hole in the cupboard as you do, and she just stayed there for a couple of months. And then I worked out that kind of <laughs> that wasn't was the nursery, really was it? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's rocks, you know, <laughs> twin hole ferries come past. It was cool. And um, and we had the whole of 1988 off anyway for the bicentennial and because the park had closed down at that point. Living at Luna Park, you had a lot of people throwing up after being on the roller coaster over the fence near the yacht. So a very nice uh, sound Sounds going on on Friday and Saturday <laughs> night. Uh, but the fun thing was you could invite your friends over, you know, so uh, we'd invite them over and um, and they'd have kids so we'd put them all through, you know, um, give them pocketfuls of tokens and off they'd go. So it was fun. It was really fun having Luna Park as a, as a front yard. What did having kids do to your plans of sailing, for sailing around the world? Well, I was just a bit concerned as my husband couldn't swim and then I had a baby, so it was like, okay, if the yacht goes down in heavy seas, who do I rescue first? And, and also, too, it's a moving thing. So when your child's trying to learn how to walk, it's not really a stable environment for them to live on. <laughs> and plus it was only 33 feet. It was a 10-metre yacht, right? So it wasn't like there were, where you went to the toilet is actually where you prepared your food, whereas, do you know what I mean? So it got a bit crowded. So you have all so, the, you have these kids and they bring all this love into your life, but the romantic some, some romantic dreams fall by the wayside, don't they? Um, well, Dennis sailed off with a couple of mates. I stood on the wharf at the back of Coney Island and waved them off as they glanced off the post and off they went. Where did, where did he sail off to? Oh, Maryborough in Queensland was the... Ultimately, that's where he ended up. And so then I, seven months pregnant, jumped in the car with my mum and met him up in Maryborough and he says, oh, we can live on the yacht. I went, no, I'm not living on the river without a shower with two children, one on the way and, and one uh, a toddler. So we ended up buying a house in Maryborough and living there for a few years. Eventually, though, you ended up coming back to Sydney with your daughters. So back in Sydney, you yep. took up teaching again. Where did you go to teach? 
So I put my name down at all these schools to be a casual teacher and I got a phone call from Hamden Park Public School. Can you come and work a couple of days here? So I'll never forget, I stood in this classroom. There's amazing Aladdin pictures that this teacher had done and painted. It was a school that had a drama pit and all straw for soundproofing. The centre of the school was the library. It's an amazing school. And I'll never forget, I stood there before all the kids came in, absolutely freaking out that I had not been in a classroom for, I don't know, 13 years or something. And how do I even do this handwriting? And I have to teach these kids all day. I'll never forget that feeling of just... And the teacher who I was replacing had homemade biscuits in his in his um, storeroom and he said, please help yourself to my biscuits, whatever. He was great. So I did two days of work there and then the news was on, on the TV and I was watching the school burn down. So the school actually burnt down. Someone used accelerant in the library and it burnt the school down. So they you, you saw your own school burning, burning down? Burning down on the TV, on the TV. one that I'd done on casual work. So I thought, well, there goes that casual job. It was close to Christmas and then the next thing... Um, the school principal rang me and said, can you do two days a week for the rest of the year? The school's just burnt down. Then an hour later I get a phone call, can you do three days a week for the rest of the year? Then he rang me and said, can you just work for me for the rest of the year? Where? So, so we were in six different locations in that area, um, in spare classrooms, in different places, in schools around. So we bust all the kids out every day. Did it freak out the children seeing their school burnt down? Kids think teachers live at school, right? So we had to sit there and some of the kids were really scared that we were ghosts because they thought that we had were living at the school and we burnt in the fire. So there's all this counselling that had to happen around that. But it created a really tight-knit group of teachers when teachers have lost everything and, I mean, everything, World War I army uniforms that they've brought in as an example to kids. I don't think people understand really how much teachers actually invest in the education of kids, especially in Australia. You go and buy all your own resources out of your own money and those people lost everything. And so the thing about me is I had stuff and I shared that around to everyone. So I made we made this really tight-knit group of people. It's, it goes back to teamwork, you know. So how did you then discover the Space Camp program? Okay. So after doing the, all that casual work at Hamden Park, I got, I got a full-time position at Canterbury South Public School. And then from that... My mother-in-law lived in Eastwood and um, and she was getting elderly and had needs, so I eventually ended up at Eastwood Public School. And I was um, assistant principal but also to computers and the internet had just come in, this strange thing called the internet. So because I had a computer at home, instantly I was like the world's leading expert in computing. Um, so I became the computer coordinator at my school, I had 140 bubble jet printers and 140 computers in this primary school running around trying to sort through that. And um, a company had created what we called the Computer Coordinators Listserv. So it was a time before, you know, you could just do Messenger and stuff like yeah, that. Listserv yeah, 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 Listserv days. Yeah, Listserv, right. Mm. So we're on this Listserv and someone goes, Honeywell's giving away scholarships to space camp. And I went, okay. It had USA on the end of it. So I thought... 
I haven't, like, my missed opportunity with the yacht. I hadn't done a gap year. My own brother and sister had lived overseas and come home again. I hadn't done any of that. And I was tired. I was burnt out. And I'm on teacher's wage and I'm thinking, America, someone could pay for me to go to America, this space camp thing. I have no idea what it is, but I could apply. So I applied and got rejected. That was 2006. And it just put me back in the same place of what, I'm just a loser. I'm never going to have this opportunity. And then um, then what happened, some people whose child I'd taught in Year 5 asked me to help them. And so I flew to Adelaide to help them. And while I was there, I got an email that says space camp applications are opening for 2007. I didn't have a laptop. Only rich people had laptops. Um, so her daughter had a laptop in her bedroom. So I asked, could I use the laptop? I don't ever know what I wrote. And then the following March, I got an email that just said, um, everyone who has applied for Space Camp, you'll find out next week who's been selected. And I went, oh, that's right, I applied for that. Because I'm just on the, like, doing my day stuff, being the parent, doing all this other stuff, being the only car driver in the family, like all of that. And so then um, the following week, a congratulations, you're going to Space Camp. Hey, you're going to Space Camp. And it was just like... I, I just remember staring like this isn't real and then um, I got my cordless phone and I rang my mother because who do you ring at 7 o'clock in the morning on a weekday? Mum, I'm going to America. And she goes, I'm so proud of you. And so then I ran off to work and, and I said I've um, been selected, one, only Australian out of 268 teachers to be selected for this program. Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Find more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. So you got on a plane a big, for the big long-haul flight. Well, yeah, and I was tired. So I had to get my mum to mind the kids and, like, all, all the logistics around being a parent and also with my class, leaving work, all of those things. So I was exhausted. So by the time I got on the plane, I fly into Dallas, I think we flew into, and there was a hailstorm and it was just terrifying. So the wind shear... Um, one minute I'm seeing the, the tarmac, the next thing I'm seeing grey sky and there's this big noise and everything and all the people were screaming. The pilot tried three times to land the plane. He goes, I'll just try that again. And out loud I said, please don't, can we go somewhere else? <laughs> and then we landed and everyone kissed the carpet and um, and I arrived in space camp three hours late and they'd had a barbecue for dinner. And all the fat had solidified in the bottom of the pan and they just went, <laughs> what name do you want on your flight suit? And I'm thinking, I have no idea what even they're talking about. So they decided Space Cadet Jackie would be a good one. And so I remember looking over and all these women knitting, watching a movie on the wall. I thought, I've come to an old people's home. This knitting? Is, yeah. They've got their feet up and they're knitting and they're watching this movie on the wall, right? And I'm there going, all the battle to get here, everything... 
you know, my 220 clip-on koalas, like everything that I took, Tim Tams, Vegemite, or everything all in my bags. I'm you brought all that stuff yeah, with yeah, you to Space yeah, Camp? Yeah, 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 for sure. I'm Australian. I had to be Australian and represent, very proud to represent public education and, oh, yeah, it was full on. I was, you know, I was koala woman. I handed out clip-on koalas to every person <laughs> known to me. So um, I was terrified I would not wake up. So I laid awake all night staring at my clock going, I'm not going to wake up. How embarrassing. They're going to be knocking on my door. What so, were your expectations for space camp at that point? I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know what it was about. I had no idea what the program was. I knew no one who had been, right, nothing. So I had no idea. So what did they, what did they do with you on day one at space camp? Well, day one was like, meet your team. We're going out to the, to the adventure kind of place where you're challenged. So we're there and um, my team's name was Team Spirit and they said, right, you're going to climb this rock wall, this 70-foot rock wall. And I'm thinking like, no, I'm not. And then I'm thinking, well, you know what, that's the old me. I'm in America. I can be whoever I want to be and I'm going to try and do this. So I this thought... Is, this is you who fell off a cliff yeah. as, as a kid. Was, yeah. was that in the back of your mind? No, but it's in the back of my body's mind. See, it might not be in the forefront of your mind, but your body can remember feelings that you might not remember. So I knew that if I was going to try it, I had to be the first one because if I watched anyone else, I'd probably run away. (laughs) So, um, and you had to do it tethered to somebody else. So therefore, if you bail you mean the other person's going to miss out. So you feel that guilt trip around, oh, what if I don't do it? This poor person doesn't get to achieve that. And everyone's cheering you on, like it's this whole thing of you can do it, you know. So I get halfway up this rock wall tethered to this guy who was like a monkey. He just held on like the whole wall was shaking because I was shaking. And he's hanging off going up, down, don't care. Like so lucky he had that kind of personality because I clung on for 20 minutes. My knees were bleeding halfway up the rock wall and I'm thinking, no, I'm going to go down. No, I'm not. I'm going to try and get up there. My mind was like, go, stay, like go, no go, you know, that Yeah, kind you could of have been stuff. like that, that fellow who swam halfway across the English Channel then got tired and swam back again. Yeah, exactly. You're not careful? <laughs> yeah, a bit like that. Yeah. And I thought, and that's what I thought to myself, you're halfway up, just do it. And then so eventually... I could get my body moving because my body froze and it was just shaking. And honestly, this whole rock wall was shaking and I just went, I just have to do it. I have to do it. I want my kids to be proud of me. So I climbed up the wall and I'll never forget, I reached up to ask this young person to give me a hoy up and she goes, do it yourself. I thought, that's it. And that got me on the rock wall. And then I never thought about how do I get down. So now I'm up in the air and I'm going... Yeah, this isn't very comfortable. Then they said, I know you have to jump off. And what do you mean jump off? Yeah, well, we put you on a zip line and, well, did anyone tell me that from the bottom? <laughs> so then I thought, you know what, that didn't kill me and I just jumped off. Jumping off a cliff is better than falling off a cliff. Well, at least I was on a zip line and yeah. I didn't hit gum tree stumps and boulders. <laughs> yeah, so and it's that sense of achievement but that whole camaraderie around egging each other to to do it, but not too far out of your comfort zone because that can go too far and it can be a negative experience. But you have options. Like I had to climb a pole and I couldn't get to the top of it and I just said I'm happy with where I, what I've achieved. I'm really proud of where I got on the pole 
and I still am to this day really proud of that. So, yeah. So, so while you were there, you learned how to fly a virtual space shuttle. You had a role in that. You, you learned all this space science as, as a result of that. Oh, I got to learn acronyms, you know. But the cool thing is, is I met Ed Buckby, the guy who was in charge of all the astronauts, the original astronauts, because he started Space Camp. And I was in a lift and he was there and he introduced himself. I met Story Musgrave, who fixed the Hubble Space Telescope. And I met Homer Hickam who's a great mate, and he um, he wrote the book Rocket Boys, the movie October Sky. And I didn't even know who these people were, but I met them. So how changed were you after a week of this? Totally. I went in there, burnout, feeling like, is this it? Surely there's more to things to do than this. My te- team spirit was great. But once it was, once it was done... But what? once it was done, you have this massive graduation, like, you know, it's America. You have this big graduation ceremony. You've got NASA representatives. You've got 600 people in the room. And, they, you know, you get your wings. You do this whole graduation thing. It's a big deal. And then they said there's an award, the Right Stuff Award, the Leader of Leaders Award. And I'm thinking, oh, Dr Greg or this person or that person. And then they went, me. I was voted the leader of leaders by 268 teachers from around the world, all these other people. The Right Stuff Award. That's fantastic. And so it's a medallion and you have to wear it home. So you can imagine it's metal, so I had to go through everything. But anyway, getting that award, everyone yelled out, the koala woman, you know. And so getting that gave me a scholarship for a kid from my school to go to space camp fully funded, airfares, everything. And on the way back... I was different. Everyone else I was working with stayed exactly the same, but I was different. And that's the thing that people don't realise. You go and you do these things and you go back, you can't fit back in the box. You were bigger than that now. Well, that's right, and you can't get back in the box, even if you want to, because you've had this different experience. So what did you want then for for kids that you knew? I walked out and went, I want to build a space camp in Australia. I walked out of there in 2007 and said, we need one of these desperately in our country. We need to uplift our kids. We need our kids to believe in themselves. We need to uplift their mental health. We need them to believe that they can do anything. We need to put them in a situation and they can be a leader. The quietest kid can be a leader. They need to understand that they have these these things that they, unless we give them the experience, how do they know they're good at it? In the meantime, how did you gather up kids, though, and bring them over to the space camp you'd been to? Okay. So I got, I got the award and on the way back in the plane, I'm thinking, what a waste to give me this. There's so many other teachers that I met that could do something with it. And I thought, stop it. You've been the old Jackie. So the new Jackie went into work, no day off for jet lag, turned up in my flight suit with my right stuff award around my neck, <laughs> rockets, Mars rovers, lobbying to school. They're all going, who is what this lunatic? Yeah. Right. Who is this lunatic? <laughs> and I've gone, I need to talk to you, to my boss. And he goes, yes. I said, um. <laughs> In your flight suit with mm-hmm. your medallion. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and I went, I've got a scholarship for a kid to go to space camp. And he goes, that's great. And I went, so I want to do a school excursion to space camp next year um, in 2008. He goes, right, okay, sure, thinking probably that it was never going to happen. So then I did that magical thing, PowerPoint, you know. PowerPoint had just come in. So I put pictures up in the school assembly. I said, sorry, Year 6, this isn't for you. 
but year four and five, this is where I've been and this is what I've done and next year I want to take everyone. So if you want to come with me, I don't know how much it's going to cost. If you want to come with me, write your name down on the sheet of paper up the back. 99 kids put their names down. Fantastic. <laughs> how are you going to get 99 kids well, to the that's United what, States? And then it was just like, okay, then what do I do? So then all the parents rallied around and I rallied around with them and so we would do Bunnings barbecues, sell chocolates, I don't know, lollies. We did early breakfast things. We did all this fundraising and... Um, I think we raised around 60 grand, something like that, in a year. And we took um, the first ever primary school trip from Australia to Space Camp USA and that was 43 year five and six kids, 12 parents and seven teachers. Wow. What effect did it have on those kids? The funny thing is at that time photo books were the thing. So we actually put a photo book together and what I did, I do a, a thing called the Golden Book and I have a book that's gold, obviously, and on the plane get everyone to write 100 words on how they're feeling, what they think is going to happen. So it would be, you know, ask you to write down what you think is going to happen, what you're looking forward to, what are you scared about, and it's just what a record of how you feel. And then on the way back, 100 words on how really was it. So I have all of that documentation in my home and then what we did was we'd make a photo book and we'd put the kids' comments there. So we had a we had a record of everyone who went and, and all of that. So those kids in 2008 went, well, the parents, not the kids, the parents goes, we're going again in 2010. So they just decided it was going to happen. And then 2012, 2011, I helped someone else take some high school kids from Sydney over. And in 2014, I actually took the first ever and probably the only at this point ever Australian group of kids to space camp in Turkey. And what's happening at your Australian space camps? We launch rockets to 400 feet, 120 metres, so we teach kids... Real rockets, not virtual rockets? Yeah, real ones. So what happens is the kids build three rockets, so we, over a four-day period, we build their skill set up. We get them working as teams to build the final rocket, but each kid does get a rocket, so it's not like four kids and everyone looks at the rocket and goes, who's taking it home? What we do is we teach them in teams so then they can, then we go, right, now you've got to build the other three, right? So they've actually got to remember what we've said from before and they've got a model to go from. Our rockets are called the King Bob rocket. They're designed and built in Queensland. The kids launched the King Bob rocket. It's a, in memory of my husband who passed away in February last year. We don't do three, two, one. We go all hail King Bob and we launch the rockets. And so they do three different kinds of rockets. They learn all about rocket propulsion, everything. When they first walk into our camp, they have an hour with an astronaut. Uh, our great friend, Greg Chamatoff, who... Um, has been to space twice, but he spent six months on the space station. The kids can ask any questions they like, so they know they're going to meet him. So we let them prepare and bring questions and it's just us and Greg. And then we put them through a whole barrage of different things. We give them activities to do as a team. They do a science experiment that they have to report their results at graduation. So there's this pressure is on the team who's going to report Who's going to record? Who's going to do this? How are we going to design this? These resources, how are we going to use them? Who's in charge? We can't lose them. We've got them for four days. We also do things about 
sustainability, how we live sustainably somewhere else. First of all, we talk about how much it costs to get things to space, talk about um, the recycled urine on the space station, get them all going about, okay, um, that's okay, isn't it? Today's coffee is tomorrow's water, that kind of thing. So we it costs $3,000, I think, a kilo to send stuff to space. If you think about how much that's going to cost if we've got six people going to Mars for seven months, how much that's going to cost and what it's going to be. We seem to be on the threshold of a new space age, a new era of space exploration right now as rockets are getting cheaper and more reusable. Do you hope some of these space camp alumni will be part of that? Oh, for sure. The thing is, I have a great friend in California who lives in a caravan and he works at NASA JPL. And when he gets up in the morning... He, he comes in, goes to his laundry, opens his laptop because that's the best internet connection he's got in his laundry, uploads um, programming to a probe that's circling the moon and goes, that's at me for the day, let's go for coffee. Um, and obviously there's meetings and all that other stuff, but you don't need to be in a city to actually be part of the space program. You can be anywhere. Australia leads the world in the remote operation of, of equipment, mining equipment especially. So it's a natural thing for us to go from that to, okay, we can remotely operate stuff on another, on, in another place. So One Giant Leap is part of the, what's called the ELO2 consortium and we're vying to be the consortium to put the first Australian rover on the moon. It's called Ruva. Um, it got voted. That was the name. I was waiting for something like Rover McRover face, but I didn't see that name. Why Rover? That's what people voted. That's what they wanted. So now we're part of one of two consortiums vying with the Australian Space Agency to be the consortium to put that on the moon. So can you imagine an Australian rover on the moon with our G'day Moon program and kids go, oh, my dad's doing that or my mum's doing that or my auntie's doing that. Um, and suddenly it, it's totally relevant because it's part of their world. So to bring and have this in Australia, we've never had that before. So we've run camps in Lightning Ridge, Canamble, Scone, heading into Broken Hill in a couple of weeks, which should be interesting. We've been packing a trailer, unpacking the trailer, to going to places operating our camp for four days, packing it all up and then coming home again. I would love to have a facility where people can come to us as well as going regional and remote. You know, when talking to you, I, I don't so much get the sense of your love of this, this whole world as being so much about what Kennedy was talking about, about the idea of space as a frontier to be explored and to plant a flag on it and all that. To me, it sounds like you're much more interested in the people. To see the kids come out, or even the adults, come out with a newfound sense of confidence in themselves, and that's and then it opens their eyes up to so many other opportunities for them. It's life changing. So to be a person who can make that happen as best I can, bumbling around with, the, you know, I'm sure um, there's I, I'm not the world's leading expert. But my heart's in it that you've got to come out and go, well, world, what else is out there? I want to f- make sure that in my life that I've brought out the best in people because that's, 
that's the wealth of our country. It's not the money, it's the people. So if our kids don't believe in themselves or the parents don't understand that the kids, there are those opportunities for kids out there, if they don't understand that, they can't help the kids achieve their dreams. So we can talk about going to the moon, but what if the parents don't understand that? So we're the only people who take parents as well as kids to space camp because we want the parents to understand where their kids are at with their dream. And it is a reality in Australia. You can have a brilliant job in the space industry. People just need to not think traditionally anymore. In order to get that kind of momentum amongst people and that energy and drive, you need this incredible project, don't you? You need it to be based around astonishingly difficult but beautiful idea, like putting someone on the moon. That's what really brings people together, gets them working towards a common goal. And it's that sense of achievement together. I mean, I don't know about you, I'm not much fussed about going to the moon, but I'm more than happy to be part of the pyramid of people to put people there. You know, I'm 62, I'm not sure that I, you know, I... I probably I could probably do a William Shatner Blue Origin thing, but could I really go to Mars? Would I handle it? Like getting a bit of arthritis here and you know what I mean? But there's plenty of <laughs> a, a lot of a lot of our problems are solved by space. The space station, there's three hundred experiments a day being done on board the space station. People don't understand that. So I think it's our job not just to create a massive space industry, but for our kids to our kids to um, understand they're worthy and that they can do it and they don't have to be an Albert Einstein to do it. They just need to love it like I love what I do. My big dream is to open my own space camp here. You already are operating a space camp. I am. It's all portable. I'd like to have a facility where people can come, but international people come. So become a tourist destination and given the Australian space camp experience. Um, in Space Camp Turkey, the kids that we took from um, Wiley Park Girls High School, we put them in pairs and then they created teams from kids in Germany, Turkey, Australia. So those kids had to work as an international team to do missions and that's what we're trying to do, aren't we? So how else can we get the understand, cultural understanding, the diversity? How else can we understand each other if we don't start putting each other together in a room and, and work together on a problem and have that sense of achievement when it's solved? Jackie, it's been brilliant speaking with you and amazing hearing your life story. Thank you so much. Thank you for thinking my story is interesting. <laughs> been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au/conversations. <laughs> <laughs>